Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Doug Wilson likes to joke that his favorite thing about Advent is that for a short time, when we're all singing together as a church, we're all post-millennial. Don't look too closely at those lyrics if you want to keep your premillennial bona fides. <laughs> well, this morning, I would tell you what verse I'm going to talk about, except I'm going to talk about the whole Bible. So uh, if you have your Bible handy, just get ready to turn to Genesis. We will begin there, and, and we will end in the book of Revelation. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, you know what distracted hearts we have We pray, Lord, that you would give us self-recollection. You know what hard, dead hearts that we have, and we pray, Lord, that you would touch and awaken us. You know how we yet resist your word, and our lower nature is reluctant to bow to your scepter. Therefore, O Lord, show forth your power, send your spirit on high to work among us, to make our hearts submissive and ourselves capable of living in true union with you, Our, our salvation and and that we would yield totally and completely to your grace. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, we've been talking a a little bit. You know, sometimes these series that I do, kind of one-off series, this is the one we're doing on Who is Israel? There's actually a lot of different things that we're addressing simultaneously. One of them is biblical literacy. One of them is how does one learn as a Christian to read the Bible? Uh, what does Deuteronomy have to do with the book of Hebrews? What, what is a shekel? You know, why is Ruth there in, <laughs> in a threshing floor covering, uncovering Boaz's feet? And doesn't that sound a little scandalous? Like, what, what is that and what does that have to do with Jesus? Now, part of what we're doing here is, is instructing you guys in how to read your Bibles. There, there is no division between the Old and New Testament. There ought not to be. I Hopefully everyone has torn that page out between the Old and New Testaments. Um, and there's di- different ways to do this, actually. There's different ways of opening up the Old Testament uh, and, and coming to understand it better. One way is what, what I call the Apostolic Study Bible, and that is you start in Matthew and you work your way through the New Testament, and every time there's a reference to a verse in the Old Testament, you go and you read not just the verse but the context. And what you learn very quickly is that the apostles knew something we didn't. And if you do this carefully, it takes a really long time, but you actually learn to read the, the Old Testament through the eyes of the apostles. That's one way. Another way of doing it is is using a systematic theology. And systematic theology, what they do is they go through the Bible and they cut out all the parts about a certain subject. Let's take all the bits about the Holy Spirit and put it in this bucket and Christ's two natures and put it in this bucket and the church and put it in that bucket. And then they explain all those verses from those buckets. They dump the bucket out and they explain them all like pieces of a puzzle. Well, another way, the last way, the hardest way, in my opinion, is what they call biblical theology, where we're not drawing circles, we're drawing lines. You start in the beginning, and when they start talking about kingdom and Genesis, you follow that idea into Exodus, and, and you follow it into Numbers, and you follow it all the way to the book of Revelation. You're like, what, what does the, under, the revelation about this concept, how does, it, how does it develop? How does it grow? How do we come to understand it? Now, biblical theology as it's called, is, I I think, the hardest uh, for two reasons. One, we are not as bright as our forebears, and we we are very modern people, and and we, we, I think, have blinders. It's a very poetic thing to do, and we are a modern people who are anything 
but poetic. And by poetic, I mean it's hard for us to understand metaphors. We like clean logic. We're like, don't, don't give me a metaphor. Just tell me. Tell me the God's honest truth, what this is. But Jesus, what did, how did he describe himself? He said, okay, I, I am the true manna from heaven, and unless you eat me, you will have no life in you. And all kinds of people are like, well, this guy's a nut. And, and they leave in John 6, right? And this is the way Jesus talks about himself. And I find that when you talk that way, the way Jesus talked about himself, I am, a, I am the true manna, and unless you eat me, you're not, you have no life in me. That still works, right? That will still divide people. People will still get up and be like, this is crazy what you're doing. Now, if you go and you go and you like therapeutic Christianity, where you're like, no, don't give me any kind of mystery. Don't give me any kind of thing I got to meditate on. Tell me the three steps to being a more productive employee. Give me the nine ways that I can really wow my wife and be the kind of woman she wants to be married to. That's therapeutic Christianity. Well, for those of you who have been here for any length of time, that is not what I'm into, okay? I am into the Jesus' manna, eat him or die. And then I just drop the mic and walk away and let the word of God do the word of what it does. So for all of you, especially the engineers in the room, okay, I apologize about this sermon in one sense because we are going to get a little poetic. But what I want to do is I want to take the 500,000 foot, like we're not even talking, you know, a, a flight over the a pole to Europe level. We're going to go to the moon and look back at the earth, and, and I'm going to describe something that is holistic. To end this whole series on what is Israel, I'm going to actually start in Genesis, and I'm going to look at something, that a poetic device that's used all the way to the very end, and, and, and God uses it to, to reveal to us not only who he is, who his people are, and what the nature of the relationship between the two is. Because he's in heaven and we are here. Are we connected to him? Organically, what does that mean? What does it mean that he sitting in heaven is connected to us sitting here? How in the world does that work, right? As moderns, I'm already like, come again? But there is this metaphor that is used. It is mythic. I said it. It is poetic. But, and it is hard to understand, but hopefully at the end of this, not only you understand this one better, you understand what, who and what Israel is, who Jesus is, but you're able to go and do something very similar to what I'm going to do on your own, but using something else like kingdom or water or the trees of Terebinth, okay, or the trees of Mamre, right? There's oaks. If you just went on a journey for the next three months studying oaks in the Bible, I'm telling you right now, you would be well-fed, so if you turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, okay, we're going to look at something that is a, an inter- interpretive key. Jesus said he is the interpretive key. He says, I am the thing. He opened up the book of Moses. He opened up the law, and he said, if you want to understand who and what I'm about, let's go back to the beginning. And so that's what we're going to do. There is a device that's there, right there in Genesis, that helps us understand that Jesus Christ is the true Israel, which means he is a fruitful olive tree. That's what he is. He's the manna from heaven. He's the door to heaven. He is a fruitful olive tree. This image is used from creation to revelation, and it helps us to understand our relation to him. To begin, we turn first to man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Now, what it says there is that a mist was going up over the land. A mist was going up over the land, And God formed man from the dust. He made a little pile of dirt. And then he breathed life into him. 
So Adam was planted in the dirt, and the seed was the breath of God. Okay? That, that, now, I have gone, I've gone from later in the Bible, and I'm coming back, and I'm reinterpreting this part based on an idea that I already had. But bear with me for a moment. God is a gardener. He's the vine dresser. Jesus told us his father's a vine dresser. And he took the seed of his, his breath, and he planted it in dirt, and what sprung up was man. Eve was a pile of dirt. She was a little piece of dirt. She was a little stump of Jesse. She was this, she was this, this little mold. And what, he, what happened was the, the seed of God's breath came into Mary, who was dirt. She descends from Adam. And what sprang up? Jesus. Okay? So Jesus is a tree. Adam is a tree. And what we have is God the Father as a gardener. He, he's, 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 how many of you guys have ever started a garden? What do you start with? You take a little thing of dirt, and you put it in the little container, and you put it in the window there, and the seed's in there, and that is what God the Father is doing in Genesis. That is what he did in the womb of Mary. Now, if we are still in Genesis, we stay there for a minute, we look at how this actually plays out. It's very interesting. After he has this seedling of Adam, it says that God starts a garden, and then he places Adam in the garden as if he is the last tree. Okay? He, he places him there. He plants him there. Adam wasn't made in the garden. He was made elsewhere very carefully, and then he's transplanted from the world into the garden. And the garden is the Lord's sanctuary. It is his throne room. It is his living room. It's his palace. There's all kinds of different ways to understand what the Garden of Eden is. So Adam was made outside of the garden and brought into the garden. Okay, in Genesis 2.28, Adam is told to be fruitful. Now think about that right out of the gate, because we're used to talking this way. Why would you tell a man to do something that trees do? Right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think God, if, if, say to Adam, have a lot of babies? Why doesn't he say have a lot of babies? Why does he use the word fruitful? Why is he talking to Adam like he's a tree? God tells Satan in Genesis chapter 3.15 that Eve will have a seed, Genesis 3.15, he says, you will have a seed and she will have a seed, co-opting the same language that he used for the, the plants from Genesis chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And, and this is where commentators get, why does he say a seed? Why does he say you're going to have a seed? Why doesn't he say you're going to have, uh, you know, in utero, you're going to have a, a, a fetus? <laughs> right? Is there, you're going to have kids. No, that's not what he says. You're going to have a seed, and he's talking to her like he was talking to the plants in Genesis chapter 1. Later, um, Jacob, when he's talking to Rebekah, he says the fruit of the womb, which I don't know if you guys knew that's where that phrase came from. Uh, when, the, when the Bible was translated into English, there were, he was trying to, Tyndale was trying to work out this idea, and he came up with this beautiful phrase in English, the fruit of the womb. And that's how he translated the Hebrew. But what kind of man talks to his wife that way? Well, we all talk to our wives that way. I talk to my wife that way. I say this is the fruit of our womb here. And I learned to talk that way. I didn't talk about my family as if they were trees before I was a Christian. And I do this all the time. You know, I, you know the Lord is going to prune you, I say. Well, why do I talk to my own family as if they're a bunch of bushes? Where did I learn to do that? Okay. <laughs> now, the curse introduces thorns into the equation, and it frustrates man's ability to work the ground. And so that the generations of heaven and earth, as it says there in Genesis 1 and 2, the generations of heaven and earth are talking about fruitful trees and fruitless thorns. 
And then you go on from there, and this is what the story is about. Either you have fruitful trees or you have fruitless thorns. You have thorns which are frustrating man's plans, frustrating God's plans, frustrating fruitfulness, frustrating dominion, frustrating everything that man is trying to accomplish in God. Or you have trees who are fruitful. They, They put roots into the ground, and they grow up tall, and they bear fruit keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist calls it. So that's what the whole Bible is about. You've got thorns and you've got trees. The curse is literally thorns in God's garden, and men are now either blessed, life-giving trees, or cursed, life-choking thorns. Promise and curse, fruitfulness and fruitlessness. Adam is betrayed in all of this as some kind of tree. Now, at this point, you might be like, okay, this is interesting, but it seems like Mike spent a little too much time in his office this week. Maybe he should go on a walk. I did go on a walk and look at all the trees and think about this, trust me. So we're going to go on from here because I think this is very shadowy. I think it's very simplistic. I think when you're in Genesis, it always is. When you cross from Ruth into Samuel, the Bible changes. It just changes because the imagery, it goes both backwards and forwards when you get there. In Genesis, everything, it's brand new. And Moses is talking to us like we're a bunch of little children. And he's not coming right out and saying, Adam, my faithful tree. He's talking to Adam in a certain way that I recognize there now because of what happens later. So I understand everything I've described seemed kind of thin. (laughs) It, It is. But we go on, and we find out that the high priest... The high priest who's put into the tabernacle, which on the inside of it is designed to look like a garden. If you turn to Exodus 39, I'm not going to read it for you, but in Exodus 39, the high priest who's told to guard and keep the tabernacle, just like Adam was told to guard and keep the garden, the high priest on his clothes has pomegranates on the hems of his clothes. So when he stands there and he goes like this, he looks like a pomegranate tree, which if you think, why? Well, he's working in the tabernacle, which if you go in the tabernacle, it's designed to look just like the garden. And so what you have is the high priest now is a tree serving the Lord in his garden. He walks with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Because what what we lost was walking with God in his garden. Okay? The tree was cast out. The tree was in the garden. The tree fell, Adam, and he was thrown out. Now what God is trying to do is get us back to where we were. And so the first thing he does with the high priest, he says, okay, not everybody, but one guy gets to look like a tree. We're going to dress him up like a tree, and we're going to let him serve me in my garden. And we're going to do this little pantomime thing where all of this, stuff, all this imagery has meaning, but it's really pointing to something else. Okay? And that's important. The whole thing is it's like, how many of you guys, when you, um, either you were in Sunday school or you had kids in Sunday school and you do the little you know, cutouts, Velcro, and you like, attach them and you do the little stories like, it's a pantomime, right? And, and I think what, what's fascinating about the Bible is it's really historically true. It's also this very elaborate play acting. And you're like, God, could you talk to me like I'm a little bit more mature and grown up than that? Why, when you didn't even understand the pantomime, like, the pantomime thing is difficult for us to understand. But why is he play acting in the tabernacle with man dressed up like a tree? I don't know about you parents, but I don't know how many my kids come in, like, in their Batman costume. And say, okay, can you be the joker so I can kill you? Well, I have sons, so that is what they say. But I say, okay, how about you just beat me up and put me in jail, okay? But then I got, they, go, they take me over to the pantomime closet where all the costumes are, and I got to dress up like some schmuck. 
and, and some stupid costume and play this whole thing with them. And, and I don't know about you, but as a grown-up, I think this is way beneath me, but I do it because, you know what, I'm married and I have kids and I want to be, you know, be obedient and happy. So I play with those kids. God is different. God comes to Aaron and Moses and says, hey, let's play dress-up. Let's play dress-up. Let's, let's do the thing where we're just like Adam in the garden. And it's just like this other thing, but I'm not going to tell you about that yet. Just trust me. We're going to play act. So here, you put on this costume and look like a tree, and I'll hide, and then we'll do this thing where you're in the garden trying to, trying to reach me, right? You're going to kill animals and have bread and incense and all these things, and we're going to play act this little thing. And what is all of that about? What is all of that about? <clears throat> in Numbers chapter 24, verse 5 through 6, Numbers chapter 24, verse 5 through 6, there is a false prophet named Balaam who is, uh, they, they, these enemies of God get this guy and bring him there and say, hey, listen, curse these Israelites. And every time he opens his mouth, he's forced to bless them. But he sees for a moment what the pantomime is all about. He, he is allowed, is that a machine gun fire? <laughs> They're coming for us. No. <clears throat> so, where was I? Okay, yes, the pantomime. For a moment, Balaam actually sees what the pantomime is all about. He is this, he's an unbeliever. He's a Gentile. God is using him to bless the people of Israel. And for a moment, God allows him to see something that is, the Israelites themselves don't see. It's something that God is doing with them, but they don't understand it. So Numbers chapter 24, verses 5 through 6. He says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like alloys that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. So there is a moment where he looks on Israel, and what he sees is a mighty grove of trees, a beautiful garden. What he sees is the Lord is there in their midst, and they are not just this rabble of people wandering around in the desert. He looks down upon them, and it looks like paradise. He looks down upon them, and he doesn't see men. He sees trees. And, and what he's seeing is he's seeing the book of Revelation, which we're going to get to. He's seeing far in the future. But he sees a reality there about what Israel actually is. They think they're just guys wandering around the desert, def, def, desperately trying to obey all these rules, when really what they have is a God who's playing pantomime with them, trying to show them where they're ultimately going to live. The imagery has expanded, and Israel, now a corporate Adam, is a fruitful tree living by streams of water, is a lush and grove of trees. When Jesus is healing a blind man, he for a moment, the blind man, can't tell if he's looking at a man or a tree. And I think for a moment as his eyes are opening to see this world for the first time, he has a moment there where he sees an Israelite and he sees what the Israelite really is. I, I think this part of the Gospels is so confusing to people, but it, this, is what I'm, this is why biblical literacy is so important. You start to follow this trail, and you're like, oh, you know what he saw was a real, a true Israelite indeed. It says in Mark chapter 8, verse 23 and 24, and he took, uh, he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people but they look like trees walking. So for a moment, he sees Israel as it truly is. And we think, well, you know, what's wrong with Jesus' spit? <laughs> Where for a momentary thing there, he, the guy thinks he sees trees instead of people. How many of you guys have ever thought that that miracle was so weird? But this is, this is, there is a reality behind the things that you see with your eyes. 
And for a moment, in this, in this miracle, because of the power of God, this man doesn't just see, he sees. Now, this is why David uses the same imagery as Balaam in Psalm chapter 1. He says in Psalm 1 that a blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So there are those blessed men who are planted by streams of living water, and there are those who are blown away. There are those who are not trees. They're not righteous. They're not blessed. And what the wind does is drive them away. And, and the, but the blessed man, the true Israelite, is a tree planted by streams of living water. And, and he, his, his tree will not wither. It will bear fruit for eternity. David is a corporate Israel after God had declared David to be his son. You are now Adam. You are now my son. You are now Israel, true Israel. And David says of himself in Psalm 52, verse 8, right after his famous repentance psalm of 51, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. David understands himself to be the blessed man planted by streams of living water. And not just any tree, an olive tree. This is where it changes. See what I'm like? This idea, you have to follow it for a time. And, and the imagery changes. We're not just talking about random trees. We're not talking about cedar trees like what Lebanon has. We're talking about olive trees. David the king is like an olive tree. Now, if you turn with me to Psalm 128. Psalm 128. David then goes on to describe the people of God. He is an olive tree. Okay, He's an olive tree. He's the king. He's the representative. He is... Israel. He says in Psalm 128, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So your wife will be like a fruitful vine. Your children will be like olive shoots. They'll be like David. Isn't that interesting? He sees himself as an olive tree, and he says the children of Israel, those born into the household of Israel, will be like little olive trees, little olive branches. The prophets, such as Jeremiah, takes up this imagery to describe the fallen state of Israel and the future hope of restoration. Now, we see now that this metaphor takes on even more life in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 11. Now, I'm going to just highlight a few things here, okay? We're not going to read the whole chapter, I promise. But it says in chapter 11 of Jeremiah, verse 3, he says, Cursed be, uh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. He goes on in verse 7, he says, Obey my voice. He says, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not do. And what that is a reference to is Deuteronomy 28. God says, If you do not stay faithful to me, I'm going to curse you. And so now what he's saying is, Because you have not obeyed my voice, I have brought upon you all these curses. 
And it's idolatry is the problem. Idols, Baals, high places, right there in Jerusalem. They're worshiping false gods right in the Garden of God. Right? They've, they've, they've taken something from outside that's foreign and a foreign god and brought them into Eden. And they're worshiping there in, before the face of God, no gods. But you go down to verse 15 of chapter 11 of Jeremiah, and it says, What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exalt? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with a good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set the um, fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done. Okay, They were a beautiful olive tree. His beloved, he says, as if he's talking to his wife, right, from Psalm 128. You were, you were my fruitful vine, and you abandoned me. And I, do you think that he is going to let them remain? Do you think that he's going to say and do nothing? No, he's going to bring the refining fire. He's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring punishment. Now, it's interesting to me that in all of this, in Jeremiah, he goes on to say this, this very mysterious thing that I think in the context of Jeremiah, everyone would have been like, how did you jump from, like, you jumped from dinner to playing baseball? Like, what do you, like, it's so maddening what you just did. And this is what he says. He says in verse 19, he's speaking on behalf of God. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. So here you have Israel, who's supposed to be a fruitful olive tree that's not fruitful, and then you have this lamb, who's also a fruitful tree, that they're trying to destroy. And if I were Jeremiah's audience, I'd be like, you prophets are so weird. (laughs) You guys cannot get your story straight. I don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about this, and then you're talking about that, and I don't understand. But if you turn with me to Mark chapter 12... Jesus very quickly understood that he was the true Israel, the true tree, and that he was inheriting a vineyard. Okay? He understood all these different metaphors for Israel. He understood who he was. He understood who God is. He understands who Israel is. And so he tells stories to Israel to tell them what's happening to them. You guys are confused. You don't know what's going on. Let me explain it to you. Okay? And this is Mark chapter 12. This is Jesus speaking to Israelites. Judeans, he says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, He had still one other, a beloved son, and finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do to those evil tenants? It's not their vineyard. 
They act like it's their vineyard. They act like their dad planted those vines. That is not their vineyard. That is not their father's vineyard. They are tenants on that vineyard. And not only do they slay the servants, the prophets of the Lord God, they sl- now we're going to send the son. And they see the fruitful tree of the son, and they say, we're going to chop him down, and we're going to take all of his fruit. We're going to take this vineyard by force. And that's the right-handed power that I was talking about before. That is the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This suffering he's going to do, this dying, this murder that they're going to commit in order to steal what's God's, he is saying, he's looking upon it, he's like, yes, this is glorious. This is glorious. And the Jews get very mad. They, they were seeking to arrest him and feared the people, for they perceived that he was, in fact, talking about them. Oh, you're calling us bad tenants, huh? You're saying you're the son who's going to inherit all this. I don't think so. And so what do they do to him? They cast him out, and they slew him, and they threw him into the streets, right? They cast him out of Israel. The struggle over the vineyard is not a metaphor. Jesus isn't just making these stories up and be like, you know what would be, you know what would be interesting is to have an illustration here of a guy having a hard time working on his car. No, he's saying there is a vineyard and there are false tenants living on that vineyard and I'm here to evict them and I'm going to evict them by them putting me to death. And I'm going to build a new house. And I'm going to be a new cornerstone. And, and the tenants, right, who are living here now are going to be thrown out and we're going to get new tenants. And this is what Peter, Peter who was there, who heard all of this. If you turn to 1 Peter, did I not tell you that this sermon was about the whole Bible? <laughs> So now we go to 1 Peter, chapter 2, and listen how all of these various threads that I've been talking about come together here in the mind of Peter. He understands what's happened. He understands what the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and, and Pentecost. He understands what all of this was really about. It's about tenants and vineyards. It's about trees. It's about households. 1 Peter chapter 2, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that fruit? Have you tasted it? Do you know it's good? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, for those who do not... Sorry. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you, not them, you, not those false tenants, you, not those Jews from the Old Testament who who abandoned God, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So does it sound there as if the vineyard was given to new tenants? 
Does it sound like those who were destined to live in that final generation and reject the son and try to steal his kingdom and steal his vineyard, does it sound like they won? Or does it sound like God has sent down this stone to build a new house, to build a new temple, and now, right, this new, they rejected it, it's crushed them, they're thrown out, and now what you have is little newborn infants. You have a whole new household. And this whole household is the household of God. It's the people of God, the family of God. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. If you won't have Jesus, you don't get his father. If you don't want Jesus, you don't get his vineyard. If you don't want Jesus, you don't get the olive tree. If you don't want Jesus, you don't get any of it. You're out. You're false tenants. Goodbye. The evil tenants are destroyed. The vineyard is given to another people. And John the baptizer had been warning them of this. John the baptizer, the Elijah, who went before Jesus the king, went around getting everyone ready. Listen, guys, listen, listen. There is this king coming, and if you're not ready, it's not going to go well for you. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not here to do anything to you. I'm just here to tell I'm just the messenger. Okay? You better get your act together because he's no ordinary king. And they're like, or, or, what? We'll, we'll kill anybody that comes down here and we'll take whatever's his. But no, but this is what John the baptizer says of Jesus. Sweet little ball lamb Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, that, that, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, let, let, did Adam remain in the garden, or was he cast out of it? Did Israel remain in the, in, in the garden of the land flowing with milk and honey, or at, because of their disobedience were they cast out of it? Okay, so what does God do when the trees are unfruitful and disobedient and wayward? Does he just let them remain? He's like, look at I am the king of this dead grove of trees. Have you ever seen a dead grove of trees? There's a spot that I like and hike out in, near the waterfall there. It's uh, Incarnation. And there's this part, you turn a corner, all of a sudden there's like five or six just dead trees. And, and you just, you're kind of nervous. You're like, are these going to fall on me? Or, you know, you hear a snap of a branch. Like, it, it doesn't look good. You can see this gap in the trees from a distance. Now, could you imagine wanting to plant your flag there and be the king of that? No, right? The best thing that you can do for all those other trees is come down and cut those unhealthy trees, those fruitless trees, those dead trees, get them out, and do what? Put new seedlings there. Put something new there. Jesus was coming to Israel. He was, he was sent to the vineyard. It was time, right? It was time for the son to come and lay claim to the inheritance. And when he came, he didn't find it fruitful. And, and John the baptizer is warning everyone about what he's going to do and what he's going to say. And, and what we find is that Jesus understood exactly what was going on. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37, Jesus himself says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. 
I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In the very next passage, Matthew chapter 12, the Jews ask Jesus for a sign. Because here he is, he's going around, he's like, listen, either the tree is good or it's not. And if it's, if it's not good, it's out. If it is good, it's in. And he's telling them to their faces, you are like a bunch of false tenants. You're like a bunch of careless tenants, God-hating tenants, tenants that are squatters now that I'm going to get rid of. And and in Matthew 12, they ask him for a sign. And we're going to talk about this in our series on Jonah because he says, you'll get no sign from me but the sign of Jonah. And all of us think, okay, he's going to go into the belly of a fish for three days. Amen. But we're going to see there's lots of signs of Jonah. One of them is that Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches to a bunch of unbelievers, and he doesn't make it one-third through the city before everybody repents and begins to believe. And so one of the signs of Jonah that they receive in that day is that Jesus is a preacher of repentance. Repent, or you're getting cut down. Repent, or the tree's going to burn. Repent, or you're out of here. That's the, I don't care who your dad is. I don't care who your great-granddad was. I don't care that you still have Abraham's sock that was handed down to you all those years. <laughs> I don't care. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. You're either uh, uh, in him or you're not. And, and, what, and it's so predictable. But they're like, but we got Abraham's sock. We got granddaddy's sock. We keep it here in the temple. That may seem like a super random metaphor, but trust me, that's going somewhere. We're going to talk about Abraham's sock again in a minute. But Jesus and John the Baptist are telling, it's not too late. We have come. Let the good, good fruit come from the good trees, and we will be the judges of this. Not you, us. The prophets then, um, and then Jesus combine all these metaphors, though. Okay, because doesn't it seem like, at this point when I was studying this, I was like, well, is he a tree or is he a vineyard? Uh, are they a vineyard or is he a vineyard? I mean, are we a field? Are they a field? I'm a worker in the field, but I am the field. And, I'm, and this is what I was talking about last week when I was like, listen, it's all of it's true. He is a tree. He is a vineyard. You are a vineyard. All of these metaphors help us at different times understand what we're really talking about. Because I can sit down and I can open up a systematic theology on the real sin of apostasy, and everybody is confused faster than you can say the word jackrabbit. Okay, but now, are you in the tree, right? Are you attached to the tree or not? Are you in his vineyard or are you not? Are you fruitful on his, on his land or are you not fruitful on his land? All of that's very easy for me to understand. Poor sinner, right, that I am. And this is where pastors and theologians always have fights over this kind of stuff because they want to make everything very cut and dry and metaphysical and ethereal. And I'm telling you, that's not how it works when you're actually working in the field of Abraham. But all of these metaphors come together in Jesus' mind because he's thinking like the prophets. If you go to Hosea, go back now, we're going to go backwards. But in chapter 14 of Hosea, we read there in verse 4 through 7, it says here, this is the Lord God speaking, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew of Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. 
and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, and they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their frame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. If you're ever going to highlight your Bible, don't use this dark purple because you cannot read it after that. So what you have is this promise from God. I will come like the dew of heaven. I will heal you from your apostasy. I will restore you. I will take you as my possession. Because it's also important to understand that he doesn't just get rid of everyone. He doesn't just come, right? He comes, and it's not just like, okay, well, what we're going to do is raise your hand if you're a Jew, and what we're going to do is kick you all out now, and we're starting over again with some Samaritans. No, he's, he's, he's speaking, and the response to him, you either accept him or you don't. You accept him or you don't. In John chapter 15, Jesus is saying that he's not even the vine dresser. He himself is the vine. He's the vine. He's, the dew from heaven has come, a new tree has come, and you either come under the shade of this tree or you don't. In John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Down in verse 8, prove to be my disciples. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments. Now, let's just talk about, prove it. If. Ooh. <laughs> well, huh. That's thorny enough. I'm going to set that aside for now. But he's there to test the vi- He's there walking in the vineyards, eating the... And I don't know if you guys have ever been on these tours where, where you go to a vineyard and they're, they're growing grapes. Wine grapes usually taste terrible, by the way. Most of them are actually not good. But I love how the, like, these guys that, that really spend a lot of time with them, they go out there and they're like touching the leaves and they smell them and they eat a grape. They go to this like green wine and they drink a little of it and they offer you some and you're like, oh. You're like, oh, no, no, yeah, yeah, the chestnut flavor is really coming out in that one, they say to you. You're like, what are you talking about? Okay. Jesus is that kind of, he's, he is here to test the vineyard. He's here to see, where's the fruit now? It's come. I'm, I'm here. I want to see the fruit. Show me the fruit. Let me see on the other side of the leaf. Is there bugs? Let's, take, let's get down on the ground and look at the roots. Let's mm, taste a little soil, which I did see a guy do one time. It's like, this guy's great. Anne-Marie, why did we go on this tour? <laughs> there's a pub right back in town we could have went to. <laughs> but this is what I, I mean, this is all through the Gospels. This is what Jesus is doing. He's testing it. He's testing the soil. He's testing the leaves. He's testing the grapes. He's testing the wine. He's testing the whole thing. And is he going to cut people off or is his father going to cut people off? It's you're either in Jesus or you're not. You believe him or you're not. You receive him or you don't. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. When we abide in him, we are rooted in him. 
Okay, we are not holding up the tree. We're the branches being held up by the tree. Okay, this is now the apostles all start talking about us, us, as if we are the fruitful vine. And it's not because we are fruitful, it's because we are attached to Jesus. We are an extension of Jesus. Our words, our, our righteous words, our actions are righteous. Actions, when we walk in the way that he walked, when we are extending from him his kingdom. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all this fullness. Because when the tree is healthy, what happens? Does the root pull up the water out of the soil? And if it's an unhealthy tree, does the water make it all the way out to the end? A little leaves. No. And so you look at a tree, you're like, why is your, why is your leaf withered? I know the tree's not bad, right? Because you're rooted and grounded in Jesus. Something isn't making it through. Something in the inner being, on, the, on your inner leafness, is missing out somehow in what the root is doing. And so this is why you start checking the fruit. You're like, what, what's going on here? What's wrong? Is there a bug on you <laughs> that we got to get off? Are you broken and we have to make sure that we attach you? And, and when you're, so, so think, think. This whole time that I'm talking about this, when I sit down with a person, this is literally how I think about them. A Christian sits and I'm like, well, let's see how withered this leaf is and the leaf is withered, so then you start asking questions. And, and, and it's not some mystery. If you go to a tree, you can figure out very quickly what's wrong with the leaf, correct? You, okay, the, oh, this tree is actually dead. The taproot on this tree is gone. But see, but the case is with us as Christians, the, the tree's never bad. The tree itself is not bad. We're attached to him. And, and as long as we are staying clear of bugs, as long as we're staying internally clear and, and the flow back and forth is working, we are supposed to be very, very, very luscious leaves. This is how the apostles understood themselves even in, involved in this. Remember I said they're the vineyard, but they're also vines. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, we are God's field, God's building. Now, doesn't that make more sense now? Right? The, the stone was rejected. Your stones now, we're building a house. He's building a house. Okay, there was tenants on a vineyard. He got rid of them. He put you here. Okay, and now you're the field of God. Okay, but now as we are going, right, may those who watered be watered. I water, right, Joel, Joel weeds, Jared does a thing, your, bro, your brother in Christ does it, right? We're working on one another even though we ourselves are the field. So imagine if, if you could, <laughs> this is where we get really stretchy. Imagine a, a leaf there on the plant and he looks over at his other leaf and he's like, whoa, whoa, there's bugs all over you. And so that leaf starts slapping the other leaf. And gets all the bugs off. Like, that, like <laughs> you are the bush, but you're also the worker. 
It is this extremely organic and beautiful and natural thing that we are with the Lord Jesus Christ and one another. We are members of one another. That's what all of that language is about. Sometimes I wish I had a little Keurig machine right here. I'd just be like, hold on, guys. Drink some coffee. All right, now I'm ready for the last round. Isaiah 27, verse 6. The prophets understood that the renewal of the tree was the hope of Israel. Unless they can get life back into this tree, unless this dead stump becomes something else, unless we can go down there and kick out the tenants, unless God sends dew from heaven, there is no hope for this vineyard. There is no hope for this tree. Isaiah 27, verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom, and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. That's the hope, right? There they are in Isaiah. They've been ca- they're going through all the turmoil that they're going through as a kingdom of God's people, and their hope, their hope is that some, this dead stump would produce something new. Jeremiah chapter 33 I promise you we're nearing the end. <laughs> Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 18. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this, this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So there's, there's this, something is going to come up out of the stump, and the name of it is the Lord is our righteousness. Not Abraham's sock, right? Not, oh, you know what, I inherited these funny clothes from my grandpa, and I've always lived here in Judea, and so I'm me an Israelite. No. Something will arise from the stump, and his name will be, The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our root. The Lord is the means of life. The Lord is the purpose of life. The Lord is the righteousness by which I am known. John chapter 19, verse 41. Just Now I'm going to go through quickly. Don't... don't don't try to keep up. John 19.41. Now, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. There's a garden there. Why, 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 do why does that matter to us? Well, because there's a seed now. There's a seed that's going to be planted. There's a seed that's going to be planted. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, what, a mustard seed, right? It's very small. What does it have to do, though? What does every seed who wants to live have to do? There is no such thing as a seed living without having to die first because it's just a stone otherwise. But you bury it in the ground, you add water, what happens? You add the dew of heaven, what happens to it? It dies, but something else comes. And so here's the root of Jesse, right, or the stump, and that's Mary, and, and, and a shoot is going to come forth from that. But, and, and here you have, next to the place where they crucified the Lord, a garden. Why? 
because they're going to plant Jesus there, and, and, and like a mustard seed, a tree is going to come up, and it's going to be much bigger than what the mustard seed actually appeared like, because it's the smallest, and it's going to fill the whole world. And there's no confusion about this, because Jesus said, hey guys, you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? You know what the kingdom of heaven is like? It's like a mustard seed. You plant it in the ground, it's tiny, but it becomes huge. And all the while, just imagine the corner of his mouth going up because he actually understands this far better than anyone gets because he understands that they're going to crucify him and plant him in a garden. He understands who and what he is. It's rich with beauty and meaning and depth and something that we could sit here and contemplate, not just today, but for the rest of our lives and not fully understand. How these things are playing off of one another, how he sees who he is and understands who he is. Zechariah 13, 8-9. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So there was a third of Israel that, that went through the refining fire and came forth and remained. He did not cast everyone out. Mary, at the empty tomb, when she mistook Jesus as the gardener, think about this for a second, John 20, 15. Jesus said to her, woman, <laughs> I'm sorry, whenever I do this, I love it. If I, I went around talking to people this way, life would be more interesting. Can you imagine? <laughs> she doesn't know who he is. Hey, woman, sorry. Sometimes the Bible gets very distracting. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. And I think that is one of the most hilarious things that ever occurred in the whole Bible. He is the gardener. Why did she think that? Why did she think that? Well, no, he's here, right? He, he's seen enough. He knows about the tenants. He, he's seen enough of fruitlessness. He's seen enough fruit. He knows who's going and who's staying. And he creates a remnant. And that remnant is Israel. That is now the vineyard. And, and, and you either come into that vineyard or you don't. And you, because of him, you come there because of him, your faith in him, your view of him, your reception of him. And when you do that, you find yourself planted in this new field. And that new field is the field that Balaam saw way back in Numbers. Because he's the tree at the center of it. He was planted in the garden next to where he died. He is rising up from the stump of Jesse. Now... <laughs> You know, this is, this is hilarious. I, was, I did all of this just so I could explain Romans chapter 11, and now I don't have time. Okay, but, but this is how this works. After all of this, there is a reason I did not just turn to Romans chapter one, verse 11, verse 1, and start explaining about Israel and the branches and, and all of that. Because that, how, how many of you are ever confused by that section? So you're like, some of Israel is Israel, some of Israel isn't Israel. They're grafting in Gentiles. They're cutting off all these other things. And, how, and, and it's super confusing. It's why I'm doing this series, because people keep coming to me. Well, what about? Well, what about? Well, what about? Well, what about? Israel is a tree. And if you're not bearing fruit and you're not abiding in Christ, you're gone. If you are, you're in. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. So if I don't bear fruit tomorrow, right, Joel's going to come over with some giant shears and cut me out of the tree? Joel, don't do it. 
No, we're talking about Israel. We're talking about the covenant. We're talking about the people. We're talking about abiding. We're talking about lasting fruit. There were tenants and they were cast out. A new field was planted. And in that, right, what happens to a generation? So if, if I, okay, if I uh, empty out the bank account of this church, steal a car and head, head to Montana because I really want to hunt elk, and nobody ever hears from me again, what might happen to the generations of my family after me? What happens to the church? Right? If, if you, right, if you, what, what he's talking about isn't that you go to Starbucks and you're rude to the barista tomorrow. Okay? He's not talking about tomorrow you yell at your kid. Repent. Right? That's what abiding means. But there is something here that we need to understand about who is Israel and who isn't and who's, how do they get in, how do they stay in, all of this stuff. It's very complicated. And it begins with Adam in the garden, and it has to do with Jesus, and it has to do with your, your view of him, your reception of him, and your faith in him. It's not flesh, it's faith. All of this vineyard metaphor is there in Romans eleven sixteen through 24, and, and I hope that you go there now this week and read it and understand it differently. There is already a tree, right? There's already a tree in existence. No, Paul does not say that there is a new tree. There is a tree because all of us were, were, are rooted and grounded in Jesus. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that through Jesus, everything was made, everything is sustained, and everything, that's the purpose of everything. Jesus is the combining thing. He reconciles everything in his cross. Jesus is the tree. He's the true tree. And all through the history, you're either attached to him or you're not. He says, Abraham saw my day. He says, Moses spoke of me because he is the tree that's always been there. And the trees that, the branches that don't bear fruit go. Now, what that looks like is him coming in the gospels and looking under leaves and checking the soil and doing all of those things. It's a process. Now, is it possible Right? Because this is, the, this is one of the most ironic things in the history of the church. He's telling the Romans in Romans 11. Okay? He's telling them, you know what? Gentiles, don't presume. Don't, right? The, the Jews said, oh, we have Abraham's sock, and so they thought they got to stay under the tree. So don't presume upon that. During the Reformation, there you have the Romans, the Roman Christians, who who somehow lost the translation of Romans 11 and were presuming all over the place, and their argument was, well, we've got Peter's sock. We've got Peter's sock. We're Christians. We've always been Christians. We're the the head of Christendom. We've got Peter's sock and this little ark that you can come and pray to, and if you put some money in the box there, you too will be saved. Because presumption is what the people of God do. We forget that we don't hold up the, the tree. The tree holds us up. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another nation bearing the fruits of it. He says, don't, don't start thinking that just because you were grafted into this tree that you can't be ungrafted. Gentiles, right? Can whole nations apostatize? Can whole, like what happened to Germany in the 20th century? This is where this thing gets, you start to think about this this way. What happened to the Lutheran church? Are you kidding me? And what happened to the American church? We were planted here, right? We, we were little seedlings that came over from England, and this whole tree grew up on the whole continent. And is God now trimming the tree? Yes. <laughs> yes, he is. And if we are presumptuous, if we assume, if we start waving around George Washington's sock, 
we're not appealing to that which actually makes us Christians. I really can't get over the sock thing. (laughs) Jesus is what it's all about. Now you tell me this. Go back to Psalm 128. He fulfills everything. His bride is the church. And this statement in Psalm 128 is about his bride. He fulfills the reality of Psalm 128 for his bride, the church. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of, uh, the Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. He is the abiding tree, and his wife, his, the church, is what? Is like a vineyard. And all of his children are like little olive trees because they're growing up to be little Christians, little Christs. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we will now turn to Revelation 22. And this is the conclusion of the matter. We started in Genesis, and now we have arrived at Revelation. It says in chapter 22, verse 1 through 5, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what Balaam saw in Numbers. That was what was supposed to happen in Eden. That was what they were replicating in the tabernacle. That is what Jesus has come to restore. The seedling grew up, and the tree, like the mustard tree, is covering the whole earth. He was hung on the tree because he's the fruit of the tree. He's the fruit of life. Okay, we eat the fruit literally every week from the tree of life because we are in him and he is in us. We are united to him and therefore he is our faithful Lord, right? And the vine dresser is working on us in Christ so that we will abide and that we will, we will one day look upon this scene that I'm describing here. This is what it's been about all along. And, and, and the olive tree, David, he failed Adam, he failed. All of these people were cast out. You know who wasn't cast out? Jesus. You know who was rooted and grounded by the streams of living water, never to be moved again? Jesus. Do you know whose tree, the fruit of whose tree gives us life? The fruit of whose tree gives us wisdom? The the fruit of whose tree is is, is set before us every week? There is not some people of God out there awaiting for the fulfillment of things. There's not some Messiah still yet to come. There's not some tribe where something was promised to in a desert way back in Abraham's day that, that, and, and, and somehow it still applies to them apart from Jesus. You are his vineyard. You are the olive tree. You are in him and he is in you. And therefore, what do we do? Do we hold him up or does he hold us up? Is there something wrong with the tree? Or is there maybe something wrong with the leaf? And, and, and so bear fruit keeping with repentance is what John warned Israel, and that's still the warning to Israel. Don't just presume that because you're attached to the tree, there's no problem, there's no, nothing required of you, everything is fine, you do whatever you want. 
We are the household of God. We are his people, his children, and in keeping with repentance, we, right, that fruit keeping in... Re- you get my point. <laughs> right? Because the vine dresser, he, he will not let his son be dishonored. He won't, he's not going to let, he's not going to compromise the tree. And, and so abiding in Christ is the point. We are the people of God. You are, you are the vine, fruitful vine. And, and that's what I want you to understand as we go into Advent, we go into Christmas, this whole thing. Notice, I didn't, don't go and do anything, but believe it. Believe what I have said. Who is he? Who are you in relation to him? Right? This is the garden. We live in the garden of the Lord. It's not pantomime. That's what Revelation tells us. It's not pantomime. All of them had to play act. What we get to do is to get the, the truth. We get the reality. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness. We thank you for Christ and his faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, um, that you, you cast out wicked tenants, Lord, that you prune your tree, Lord, that you, uh, even when it bears fruit, Lord, you prune it so that it bears even more fruit. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the dew of heaven. We thank you for uh, his abiding in us and our abiding in him. And I pray that as we go from here, that we would... Um, as, as we've tasted the Lord and we know that he is good, that we would continue to obey and to pursue and to love and adore your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and amen.